Welcome to Faith Sermons and Studies with Pastor Joe DeVitro. I've entitled the message this morning, Being Thankful or Giving Thanks. Is there a difference in being thankful and giving thanks? Can, can you give thanks without being thankful? And you, can you be thankful without a spirit of giving thanks? Absolutely. And uh, take your Bibles this morning. Let's go to Philippians chapter 1. Because Paul is going to talk to a church about their spiritual relationship uh, and, and with God and the outflows of that. Uh, we'll read this together. I'll read the first slide. I'll let you guys read the second slide. And uh, we'll do this kind of congregational reading style. I like when you participate in the message uh, that way. So it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God, or my God, in all my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense in the defense of the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. Now I yearn for you all with affection or with the affection of Christ Jesus. Where is Paul when he writes this? He's in prison, right? He's in prison when he pens the words that we just read together. So is Paul being thankful or is he giving thanks? You know, being thankful or giving thanks is a strange title for a message, but I've, I find it very easy to be thankful for many things while my spirit inside of me isn't very thankful. Isn't it interesting how easy it is to be thankful for good things? while at best we ignore the bad things? You know, right now, are we thankful for the president that we have? Are we thankful that we live in one of the most free countries in all the world today? Are we thankful for a judicial system that seeks justice despite what popularity is? Are we, are we thankful for a free press? See what I mean? We can be thankful or we can give thanks without being thankful. We can pick and choose what we're thankful for based on how good it is while ignoring the bad things. But that's not how Paul lived his life. And by the end of the message today, I hope to show you that in Scripture, most of the true spiritual beings, that's not men of God or women of God. That's not how they live their lives either. They didn't live emotionally driven by the things going on around them. They lived objectively confident in the person that lived within them. And there's a vast difference there. Because the one, you're going to become so emotionally tied to the world that your spiritual life is tied to the world. But in the other, you can become so tied to Jesus Christ that 
you become otherworldly. That you're different. You're distinct. You're a weirdo. You're worthy of imprisonment. According to the time in which Paul lives. So isn't it interesting how easy it is to be thankful for good things while at best ignoring the bad? We all know the origin of Thanksgiving, don't we? This week we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving and, you know, the pilgrim is... I don't even know if that's culturally relevant anymore, is it? Can you identify people as pilgrims and Indians? Have we gone so far social justice that we can't just, like, identify people even anymore? And I say that somewhat in jesting, but not really... Because some of the very things that we're struggling with in America today are the very reasons why the pilgrims left where they were. It's, it's the very reasons that, that they left the second place in which they were. So we know the Thanksgiving story of how our pilgrim fathers living in England, they're being oppressed by the king, they're seeking religious liberty, freedom of conscience, freedom to worship God according to the dictates of their own hearts. They're not able to do this. They're strangers in a land under a government. So they decide that they're going to leave, right? They're going to go to another place where they are free to worship. They're free to have the government not involved in their freedom, not involved in their equality, not involved in their liberty. They want to be on their own. So they dream of finding a new land where they can establish a government in a society where the people would all be equal where we could all stand before God and worship him according to the dictates of our own hearts. And it's on this premise that the pilgrims board the ships and they set sail across the Atlantic Ocean. They made the journey in a little ship called what? Mayflower, right? The Mayflower, barely bigger than this auditorium. Think about that. 13 weeks living in this box. Their ship, 28 feet wide, 113 feet long, 120 people, 12 of them children, 30 of them crew members board the small ship and they set sail across the Atlantic Ocean. And for 13 weeks, they battle the storms, the waves, the dangers, sickness, the hardship. Finally, they land on the Plymouth coast on a rocky shore. They fall to the knees and they thank God for bringing them to this wonderful land of promise, right? However, it was also a land that would repulse them. It, was a, it would be a land full of enemies, a land that was unfriendly to them and who would also kill them. But we don't remember that part, do we? We all think the pilgrims came over, they landed on Plymouth Rock and they lived happily ever after because look at the feast they had. Look at the worship they're doing. The land was a hostile environment of snow, storms, hunger. They built little fortresses during the winter in which they literally starved to death while they were living inside them. Before the winter was over, though, there were more crosses on the hillside than people living inside the barricades. But these men, when spring came, they decided they were going to plow the soil and plant seeds and cultivate the crops and build a new life where they were. When fall came, they brought the harvest in and they said this, let us have a feast of thanksgiving to God, bringing our first fruits and honor to him for God's goodness. How's it good when your friends are dead? How's it good when you can't go back home? How's it good when people you love are sick? 
But it's also as well that we as American people today with a history of tradition and foundation of faith in God, that we have a national holiday called what? Thanksgiving. But we realize this morning there are 364 other days that are worthy of your praise and thanksgiving as well. Thanksgiving is one day, but what about the other days? What about perpetual thanksgiving? That's as Christians what it ought to be for us. Every day should be a beautiful day. Every day is a day in which we get to serve the Lord with gladness. Every day is a day in which we get to enter into his courts with praise. Every day is a day in which we should be thankful to him and praise his name. Thanksgiving should be every day. And this attitude can change and will change our lives and it will change the lives of those around us as well. When we get this mindset, let this mind be in you who is also in Christ Jesus. What did he do? He gave thanks to his God for allowing him the opportunity to die on a cross for us. You ever wonder what Jesus prayed for when he often went off alone to pray? I think he prayed for his followers. I do think that. But I think he also prayed that God would be glorified through what he was doing for for the glory of God. So if there was somebody in the Bible who gave thanks in all manner of life, I think it's one of my favorite Bible characters, and it's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, he understood Thanksgiving was an attitude that conditioned everything that happened to him. Did Paul have reason to point out the the bad things in life? Did he ever point the bad things out in life? Remember when he gave his defense? (laughs) What's he say? I've been shipwrecked. I've been bitten by poisonous snakes. I've been left alone to die. I've been stoned. I've been all these things. And yet none of these things matter to me because the name of Jesus Christ is far better. And I would gladly die a slave of Jesus than to do anything else. How do you get that mindset? How do you get that kind of attitude? He understood Thanksgiving was an attitude that conditioned everything that happened to him. What are you giving thanks for today? By the way, the reason that Paul was this way is why he was able to write what he wrote to the different churches. Check this out. Romans chapter 1 and verse 8. First, I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Had Paul ever been to Rome to this point? No. And Paul's hearing and thanking the Lord for people he's never met. How often do we do that? Thank the Lord for Christians we've never met in places we've never been, for the joy and the word that's coming back and how the gospel is going forth through them. He wrote to the church of Corinth where he established the church and suffered all kinds of difficulties and misunderstandings. A church full of problems. And he writes this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Jesus Christ. I know what I would have written to this church. You sorry bunch of down there, no good, secular thinking jerks. Right? But then he even continues to say in this passage, he says this, I thank God who enables us to walk triumphantly through all circumstances of life. How does he do that? I praise the Lord for you bunch of wretched people that even God can work in your life as he's worked in mine. And he never calls them wretched. Instead, he calls them people of God. 
Paul writes in Ephesians 1.16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. People of Ephesus, he writes to Timothy, his young son in ministry, he writes, I thank God to whom I serve and serve and you serve. I thank God for our calling as ministers of the gospel. This morning in Philippians, we've read the Thanksgiving passage to the church of Philippi, and he gives us a key in this passage. In these words, he gives us a secret, the key to the secret of a thankful life. Perpetual thanksgiving, an attitude of thanksgiving. How do we get one of those? He tells us that it's a key in three things. Paul says, I thank God for the fellowship we had. And he describes three areas in which they had fellowship. He reminds them that they are all in this life together. We have fellowship with one another and that rises from an attitude of thanksgiving. This provides a clear focus for us today. So I want you, first of all, to look at the passage, look at verse seven with me and understand this. Paul gives thanks for the fellowship of imprisonment. Now this sounds weird for us, right? How many of you have ever been in prison on purpose? Okay. How many of the Philippian people have been in jail with him? None. So what in the world is he talking about? Look at verse seven. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my what? In my chains, my imprisonment. How, how do we have fellowship and being in prison together? How, how do we have fellowship and being in chains together? I don't know about you, but if you've ever researched the prison that Paul spent time in, how many have ever seen Paul's jail cell? Anybody seen it? Anybody ever researched this? It's called the Mermentine Prison. It's in Rome. You can actually go there today and visit it. If we were able to go over there, you would see the excavations of the Roman Forum. You would see the public buildings. Then over on the other side of the street, across from an area that's been excavated, you would see the Mermentine prison where political prisoners were kept of Rome. There would be an entrance on the street level in which they'd bring the prisoner into a room. There was a hole in the floor that dropped down 12 feet to a dungeon underneath. And in that room, there was another hole in the floor which led to, well, the city sewer. The city sewer system. And Paul would have been taken captive, brought to this room, had his sentence read to him, and he would have been dropped, literally dropped 12 feet into a hole in the floor down into the prison cell in which he'd be held until he'd be beheaded. There are no steps that he went down. There was nothing that enabled him to walk down gently into a jail cell. In Paul's day, they just took the hole, dropped you through it. And however you hit the ground was how you hit the ground because, well, in a few short days, you were going to be dead anyway, right? This was death row to Rome. That's where Paul was in chains. He was not just in the hole, but he was in the hole in chains. You say, well, how did he get in chains? Well, they would lower nicely centurions down into the hole. And those guys would chain Paul to the walls and then some of them sometimes would also be chained to the prisoner to make sure there was no way to get out. So the ceiling's 12 feet above you with a hole in the ground, hole in the floor. There's a hole in the bottom that leads down to the city sewer if you wanted to go that way. 
Well, better yet, rather than me trying to explain it, why don't we just see a video of it, should we? Let's see where Paul actually went right before he was to be killed. Today I'm going to take you briefly down into the dungeons of this prison in ancient Rome. Now this prison is not just any ordinary prison, in fact it's the place where the Apostle Paul were held in chains over 2,000 years ago. Now anyone who thinks the Bible is not historical fact really needs to do some more research into history. Because this is one prime example, this prison in Rome. In Acts 27-28 it tells us the story that Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, imprisoned at Caesarea for two years, then Paul appealed to Caesar and suffered a shipwreck on his way to Rome as a prisoner. After two years, Paul was released from his imprisonment, after which he travelled and wrote two more epistles before his final Roman imprisonment in the Mamertine prison. Here, Paul wrote these words to Timothy. I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. This is the site where Paul wrote to Timothy in the Bible. And I tell you what, it is quite humbling to be standing outside the place where Paul suffered for the furtherance of the gospel. He went through many things through his life, many trials and tribulations, things that we can't even imagine, actually, and our suffering so far has paled in comparison to the things that Paul, the Apostle Paul and Peter and others went through. archaeological site have actually banned me from filming but being in here really gives you the raw idea of the cold damp harsh conditions that the Apostle Paul had to endure whilst in captivity for Jesus I tell you it is freezing cold once you get down here which kind of makes sense as Paul wrote in 2 Timothy the cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when you come, bring with you. And the books, but especially the parchments. So Paul was asking for his coat to be brought, which kind of makes sense now I'm down here, you know? What's even worse? 
worse is that back in the day, 2,000 years ago, any prisoner that was down here would have been knee-deep in Roman sewage. That's where Paul's writing from. That's what Paul's experiencing when he says, I'm praying for you all. That as you are co-laborers in my chains together, I'm praying for you. It wasn't some big church. It wasn't some fancy building. It's a dark, cold prison cell. And he says, I give thanks to you. I pray for you. I think of you. Now, can you imagine as Paul is dictating letters, perhaps yelling through the hole in the ceiling to those that are in the room above him? While his chains are rattling, he's pacing back and forth in this little dark dungeon of a room. And he's thinking of the fellowship that he has with the saints of Philippi. Paul is going to be soon executed. And it's not going to be an easy humanitarian form of execution. He's going to be beheaded with a hammer. Not a sword. He's going to have a hammer taken to his throat and to his neck until his head literally falls off. And they're going to pulverize his neck because, well, that's how bloodthirsty Roman people were. They were great at killing you as long as possible. Dragging it out as long as possible to make you an example so others will not follow. And Paul says this, I want to remind you all that we all are wearing the same chains. The chains that as I sit in a sewer up to my knees of Roman dung. By the way, when he writes that all our sinners is filthy rags, does that give you a little better picture of what he's trying to describe? As he's sitting in sewer, literally. And heaven forbid the rains come during the rainy season of Rome because as the sewer gets overwhelmed with water, where's that water going to go? Higher up in his prison cell. It's not like prison today where we have TVs and gyms and, and three square meals. His food would have been dropped down in the hole to him. Hopefully you would catch it. Rats and other, other things would have been in there together with him. And it is in this situation that one of the greatest apostles that's ever lived writes the words, in everything give thanks. Really, Paul? In everything? In all situations? It's easy to do when the good things are happening, isn't it? Paul's not in a good situation, though. Paul's in a very bad place. Pain and suffering are the chains he's talking about. Hardship is the chains he's talking about. They come to everybody and it's, com it's the common denominator of life. Death is going to come and break everybody's family circle at some point. We're not going to escape. We have fellowship in this. Pain is going to come to your body sooner or later and it comes to all of us and we have a fellowship in this. People are going to disappoint us, break our hearts and we all have a fellowship in this. Paul says elsewhere that we have a fellowship in suffering even with Jesus Christ for he suffered on the cross and he shares in our suffering as we suffer. This is the reason why we find joy and victory in our suffering. This is why Paul said in every state that I am, let me therewith be what? Can you imagine being content down there? 
Godliness with contentment is what? Great gain. God can make the most of a terrible situation, an unimaginable situation, and he can make something beautiful out of it. You know why? Because God is sovereign. God is in control. Paul was not worried about what was going to happen to him because who was in control? God was. He could give thanks in every situation because who allowed it to happen in his life? And the more that the bad things happened, the more it proved who was in his life. God. That's what Paul's talking about when he mentions the fellowship of his chains. It is the fellowship of suffering that we all have together. I find joy in it as you find joy in it because Jesus Christ himself is in it, Paul says. So thanks be to God who gives the victory to be triumphant over circumstances in life. And did Paul know circumstances? Yeah, you better believe he did. Then it goes on to the next part of the verse. Notice verse 7 again. He says, both in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul thanks God for the fellowship of the gospel. One particularly windy fall day, a young woman, we'll call her name Sarah this morning. She was traveling alone up a rutted, ragged highway between Alberta, Canada, and the Yukon. Linda didn't know that you weren't supposed to travel to the town of Whitehorse alone. And uh, so she jumped in her Honda Civic and set off for where only four-wheel drive or more vehicles would ever venture. The first evening she found room in, a mountain, in the mountains near the summit and asked for a 5 a.m. wake-up call, at which the front desk clerk began to kind of chuckle and look surprised at her request. She awoke early in the morning only to find the place surrounded by fog. So thick, you couldn't even see the car in the parking lot. Not wanting to look foolish, she went over to breakfast and there were two truckers that were sitting there and invited Sarah to sit with them. And since the place was so small, she felt obligated to sit. And they asked, where are you headed, ma'am? Whitehorse, she said. The trucker replied, in that little Civic? I don't think so. This pass is dangerous and the weather like this, well, You'll never make it. She said, you know what? I'm determined. I'm, I'm going to try. The trucker looked at her with care and compassion and said, well, then I guess we're going to have to hug you. At which the lady stands up and says, there is no way I'm going to let you touch me. Both truckers begin to laugh because she didn't understand their jargon. The trucker said, no, we're going to give you a hug. I'm going to put my truck in front of your car and he's going to put his truck behind your car and all you're going to do is follow little, little red lights. And as long as you keep the lights in your windshield, you're good. But if you let the lights stray too far in front or you allow them to get too far to the left or the right, then you are in danger and the hug from behind is going to be the shove in the right direction. All foggy morning, Sarah followed two little red dots in front of her, and she had the reassurance of big white lights behind her that let her know that she was on the right path. And you know what? We too can get caught up in the fog. We too can get caught up in the world. We can get caught up in life, looking at everybody else and everything else, when really we just need to be hugged by people around us. Why do we need the church today? We need the church today, not because the church is radically going to change the world, because individuals are going to do that as they sell out for Christ. 
But we need the church today because sometimes we're going through problems in which we need a Christian in front of us and we need another behind us to make sure we don't get off the path. That we can find the way. We need people in our lives who know the way, the truth, and the life. Who understand where we are and help us to get us out of the situation we put ourselves in. We should remind ourselves how blessed we are to have people around us who will hug us through the journey that God has for us. But then last of all, Paul thanks God for the fellowship of grace. The fellowship of grace. One of the incredible truths about community of faith is that we all have experienced grace. Have you ever experienced grace in your life? You didn't get what you deserved. You didn't get what you should have got. I'm afraid many of us are guilty of judging people based on what we appear to be on the surface. I'm reminded of a story <laughs> that I came across, and I still love this to this day. Because I found it easy myself to forget that the real evidence of fellowship is not what we see on the outside of a person, but what really abides in their heart. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth what? We know what a person's like by how they talk and how they act and how they walk. A lady showed up in, faded, in a faded dress and her husband dressed in a homemade suit and they stepped off a train in Boston, Massachusetts. I should say Boston, Massachusetts, if I'm going to say it right. Boston, Massachusetts. And they walked timidly without an appointment into the president of Harvard's outer office. These backwoods people, these country ex, had no business at Harvard and probably didn't even deserve to be in Cambridge, let alone in this office, the secretary was thinking to herself. The young couple says, we want to see the president. The secretary says, he'll be busy all day. Come back tomorrow, make an appointment. The man refused and for hours the secretary ignored them in the lobby sitting right in front of them hoping that the couple would finally just be so discouraged that they would just go away, but they didn't. The secretary grew increasingly frustrated as it was a chore to work around these ever-present people. Finally, she walks into the president's office and says, maybe if you just see these people for a few minutes, they'll leave and I can actually get some work done for you. Sounds like a secretary, right? He sighed, the president sighed and exasperated, finally nodded and said, fine, have them come in. Someone of the president's importance obviously didn't have time to spend time with these lowlifes, but he detested their outfits and cluttering up of his office enough that he gave them a listen. The president of Harvard, stern faced with dignity, strutted towards the couple and the lady told him, we have a son that attended Harvard for one year. He loved Harvard. He was happy here. But a year ago, he was accidentally killed. My husband and I would like to erect a, a memorial to him somewhere on campus. The president was not touched by their gesture. Actually, he was shocked and he said something like this. Ma'am, we can't put a statue up for every person who attended Harvard and died. If we did, this place would look more like a cemetery than a place of higher learning. Oh, no, 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 the lady explained. We don't want to erect a statue. We thought we would like to give Harvard a building. 
a building. He rolls his eyes at the very unkept couple and exclaimed, a building? Do you have any earthly idea how much a building cost? He said, we have over seven and a half million dollars in physical property here at Harvard. The president was not pleased. At that gesture, the lady had a puzzled look on her face and looked at her husband and said, why are we here? The husband replied with a nod, like, we're here because this is where we need to be. The lady looked at her husband and, and, and began to nod herself and looked back at the president with a, with a face of confidence in which allowed the president's face and countenance to change dramatically because he just realized something had just changed. Something had just reversed itself in his presence. The lady looked at her husband and said, why don't we just start our own college then? The husband nodded in agreement. And Mr. and Mrs. Leland Stafford walked out of Harvard University that day, set apart to go to Palo Alto, California, where they would start a university that bears the name as a memorial to their son, Stanford University. You know, it's easy to judge people by what they look like on the outside or by how they treat those who can do nothing for them on the outside. But standing in the presence of the Harvard president was one of the most richest and most powerful couples in a very comely presence. Brings me to the final thought. Are we giving thanks or are we thankful? Are we giving thanks or are we thankful? You know, I think sometimes we're both, but very rarely are we both all the time. Paul said, I continue to pray and give thanks for Corinth, for Ephesus, for Philippi, for Rome, for all these cities in which he's poured his life into. And he's writing the prison epistles while he's chained and sitting in dung and, and dirt and rats and, and all these things. And he says, I'm content. I'm ready to be poured out. I, I serve the Lord. I love the Lord. His circumstances didn't dictate his thankfulness. And his thankfulness was not dictated by his circumstances. I wonder this season, as we get ready to give thanks, as we get ready to celebrate Thanksgiving this week, will you be thankful or will you give thanks? You see, one is a momentary emotion. The other is driven by object, objective truth. You know, we have so much in our world today that's emotional, don't we? Politics is objective, though, isn't it? No. Politics is emotional. News is emotional. A lot of worship and a lot of truth that's told today in churches as religion is emotional. But friends, when you get to the objective truth of God's word, God's character and who he is, a guy like Paul in a prison cell can give thanks. You know what that tells me? Our emotions should not be dictated by what's going on around us as much as it should about what's going on within us. Thanksgiving is an attitude. Thanksgiving is a choice. Thanksgiving is something we choose to do or we choose not to do. 
So my question for you this week is this. What are you going to focus on this week? Are you going to focus on all the bad things that are going on? Because every time we tell the Thanksgiving story, we always talk about what? The pilgrims and the Indians came together and they had dinner together and everybody was happy, kumbaya. That's not the story. That's not how it happened. That's not what transpired at all. But we like to remember the good without the bad. So this week, as you go through the good moments and you go through the hard moments, are you able to give thanks or are you just thankful? Because we can be thankful without giving thanks. We can, we can give mental assent and recognition to the fact that, yeah, I like the good things in my life and the good things I'm going to emphasize, but I'm not going to emphasize the bad. We live in a world that is not very thankful. We live in a time in which people are not very gracious. They're not very long-suffering. Maybe we this week can be the ones that are different. Maybe we can be the ones that 365 days a year choose to be thankful, even though there might not be a reason on the outside to give thanks, we can still give thanks. And maybe, just maybe, in our giving thanks and our praying for other people, God may just open up doors of opportunity for us to speak truth into people's lives who are way worse off than we are. And for that, everybody can give thanks. Amen? So what are you going to do this week with what Jesus Christ has given to you? We can go like Psalm 98 and we can make a joyful noise unto the Lord all the lands. We can go forth and allow the creation to cry out that there's a God and celebrate. And the rivers will rush and the winds will blow and all these things are going to show that God exists and, and is worthy of praise. Or we ourselves as God creation can also give thanks. And we can do it intentionally and we can speak into people's lives the truth. We can meet them where they are, speak truth into their life, and allow God to work through us and in us both the will and the do of his good pleasure. Paul says in verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, for God is my witness, I now yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. If you walk around with a thankful heart, you're also going to have an affection for those to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. Who are you going to share grace with this week? Who are you going to speak into their life this week? Share what, why you're thankful, why you're grateful for what God has done for you. None of us this Thanksgiving are going to be sitting in a pile of crap, chained in a dungeon, waiting to be beheaded. Yet Paul was able to write, I thank God. I thank God for my chains, my imprisonment, and for the grace and the gospel for which I'm in chains. May that be us this Thanksgiving. Not that we go out and get thrown in prison and do all that, but that we can have that same attitude of gratitude during this season. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's quick and powerful, oh Lord. I thank you for a message that is, is pretty simple, pretty basic, but so hard to live. It's hard to give thanks when things are not going our way. It's easy to look at the world and to be a complainer and to, to the snivel and, 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 
and get all worked up about what's going on around us or we can focus on the one who's in control. The one who, it wasn't surprised by the corruption of the Roman Empire. The one who isn't surprised at the fact that Paul's in chains sitting in a prison because it's exactly, Father, where you put him. And you put Roman control during this time so that Jesus could be crucified on the cross. And so that the gospel would be able to go forth into all the world because of the Roman road system that the Romans paved with salt throughout the empire. So Father, you allow things to happen in certain situations and certain times and certain reasons for your glory. And Father, whether we understand those things or not, it really is it doesn't really matter to us. It's do we trust you? Do we have confidence in you? Do we know that you are going to be our God and we are going to be your people regardless of who's in control? So Father, I pray that as we go forward this week and as we share the hope that's within us with meekness and fear, that Father, we would be able to be thankful, to be grateful, to praise your name in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. Maybe it's hardships at work with friends, family, whatever it is. Father, you are in control. We can give thanks for what you've done for us. And Father, I pray that we wouldn't be people driven by emotion this holiday season, but people driven by objective truth. The greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. That no good thing, Father, would you withhold from them who walk uprightly. And Father, that we are your ambassadors in this land to speak the truth of the gospel to those who need to hear. So Father, as we give thanks this holiday season, may we also reach out and share the hope that's within us with meekness and fear. May you get the glory in that. All God's people said. Thank you.